Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing all right, Robert, but it's it's kind of been a rough week news-wise. Ugh, yeah, no kidding. It has been a rough week news-wise. That is true. Um, but I guess I guess in, in a strange turn of fate, it's maybe not as bad in Kentucky as it is like on the federal level, which is usually upside down from how it goes. But yeah, we are, we are here to talk to you about Kentucky and stuff related to us. Uh, we have a new candidate for governor. So we're going to talk about that. Ryan Mm -hmm. Quarles, the Agriculture Commissioner. So I'm going to do kind of a get-to-know Ryan Quarles. Um, One of the things we had wanted to do before the primary started was to talk about down-ballot races, and especially like judicial races, which every county has. We elect all of our judges here in Kentucky. um, But sometimes it gets really confusing about what the heck they are. What is a district court? What is a circuit court? What's a court of appeals? Um, What are these things? Why are we voting on them? What does it mean? And and, and Jasmine's going to go over all that. Uh, She's an expert. um, So I'm glad uh, we could do that so um, she's going to tell us everything we need to know about that and we also have a guest today jonathan lowe is a candidate for kentucky house in louisville in in district 34 that's the new district that's kind of in the highlands and st matthews and crescent hill um no no incumbent in that area Uh, we we talked to his primary opponent a couple of weeks ago um so if you live in district 34 and you know i think we have quite a few listeners in district 34 i really encourage you to check this one out um you know go back and listen to his opponent as well but but i was really impressed with with mr lowe He, he brings a lot of expertise about the state government to this race already he's worked for the lrc he's not blinded by what he might be able to get done but also brings a certain type of optimism uh to the race and and i think would bring it to frankfurt if he's elected that is kind of you know i think what you're looking for in in democrats these days so jasmine what, what were your thoughts did you like the interview yeah i really enjoyed that interview i think that the people of district 34 which includes my parents. Uh, they have a they have a tough choice to make in yeah. a couple weeks. Yeah, there's a bunch of really good primaries here in Louisville. Um, Lexington has a few as well, but Louisville I think has at least three really good primaries with with good candidates, multiple good candidates running. So you know we're gonna do our best to talk to everybody. In the meantime, uh, you know you should just listen up, uh, listen to these interviews, and 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 see what you think uh, before you before you vote in a couple weeks here. So um, all right, well without any further ado, um, let me talk about Ryan Quarles. All right, Jasmine. Ryan Quarles is the Kentucky Agriculture Commissioner, and on Saturday he announced that he is going to run for governor. He did that at the Fayette County Reagan dinner, and that's something that's long been expected. A lot of people have said he's uh, going to be the governor. I, I, something I've been hearing for more than a decade uh, is that he uh, will run for governor one day and likely will become governor one day. A, a lot of people really think he would be a good Republican candidate for governorship. Jasmine, this is something you've heard as well, right? Yeah, I've definitely heard this. I mean, from you, you probably heard it before me because I, I know you knew him way back when. Um, but I at least heard it from the first time he ran for ag commissioner. Like, you know, this is this is a jumping off point for his gubernatorial race. Absolutely, and, and I would expect that most of our listeners, the people who listen to my old Kentucky podcast, probably know who Ryan Quarles is. That's the name that they've heard before. They probably know he's agriculture commissioner. But but I think it's important that we dig a little bit deeper to understand who he is, where he comes from, what he's done in the past. I, I mean, he stands a pretty good chance to become governor one day. I, I don't think that that's unfair to say. Uh, and even if he's not successful this time, either in the primary or the general, he's pretty young. 
young and he's probably mm-hmm. going to be with us for a long time so getting to know Orion Quarles pretty well is not a bad idea if you're somebody who cares about Kentucky politics about Kentucky government because he is likely going to be a player for a long time into the future so we're going to do that today So Ryan Quarles was first elected to office in 2010 when he unseated Democrat Charlie Hoffman to become a member of the Kentucky House in District 62. At the time, Quarles was 27 years old. The minimum age to be in the House is 25, so he was two years older than the minimum age. And also, he was a classmate of mine (laughs) in public administration 651 at the University of Kentucky Martin (laughs) School for Public Policy. I think he was also pursuing his JD at the time, so he was getting his JD, getting his MPA, and a member of the Kentucky House of Representatives. So that is that is what this guy is about. So I remember, I you know, he wasn't in class a lot. I think he had like worked it out with a teacher how he would be able to you know complete his coursework and run for office. Um, my professor was really impressed with him. Uh, I remember the first class after election day, she was like, "That guy worked really hard." Uh, she had been in the LRC. She knew Charlie Hoffman, and she was like, "She just outworked. He just outworked Charlie, uh, and and now he's going to be in the house. That's really impressive." So, uh, a lot of people was were impressed. Quarles run his first race by less than 300 votes when he unseated Charlie Hoffman, but he was reelected by a much healthier margin in 2012 with his rematch. And that you know Charlie Hoffman ran in 2012 again, and, and Quarles won by a larger margin in 2012. And his race in 2014 against Chuck uh, Tackett, he won by an even larger margin. So larger margins every time he ran in the three elections he was uh, elected to the Kentucky House. One thing to know is that this was, you know, the early 2010s, a very different era of Kentucky politics than the one that we've been recording in. Um, <laughs> and District 62 is in Scott County. Uh, that is the, the Georgetown seat. And, and in 2010, Georgetown was quite a swingy area. You know, Hoffman, Charlie Hoffman had held the seat in the House since the 90s. But Damon Thayer is also from there. He's he's the senator from, from uh, Georgetown, from uh, Scott County. Uh, his district includes more Republican areas, too. But that, that's not something to be discounted. And, uh, you know, in the special election, after Ryan Quarles became the agriculture commissioner, Chuck Tackett, who had lost to Quarles in 2014, actually won the seat for Democrats. Jasmine, one of our very first shows back in 2016, before the election in 2016, was about those four special elections that Democrats swept. And this was one of them. It was after Charlie, after Ryan Quarles had been elected to agriculture commissioner, Democrats, and, and, and Matt Bevan had named a couple of Democrats. Democrats into his cabinet to try to open up those seats in the House to try to get Republicans to take the House in the 2016 session, and they were unsuccessful. In the special elections in 2016, Democrats swept all of those. We were feeling good. It didn't work out for us in the fall. Now, yeah. <laughs> he, Representative Tackett was, was not there very long. <laughs> no, no, he was not there for very long. So, yeah, that, that Philip Pratt took over that seat in 2016. He's still there. He's somebody that, that has been there for a while now. So so that's something that that, that is kind of Ryan Quarles' history in the House. Uh, one thing to think about in, in the government, in Frankfurt in 2010, the House was still very much in control of the Democrats. 2010 was also the Tea Party wave, if you remember that. And Republicans actually picked up seven seats in that election in the House, but still held just 42 seats. So they picked up seven seats and had 42 seats. So that is right. In 20, 2008, Republicans had 35 seats. Crazy to think about these days. Uh, Democrats holding that many seats. But that is not that long ago. That is just 12 years ago. Um 
Okay, as a member of the minority, Ryan Quarles couldn't do very much. That's something we say a lot to Democrats now, but that was true of Republicans back then. But he did partner with the Democratic governor, who was Steve Bashir at the time, on easy wins, such as like a $16 million project that improved US-25. If you've gone from Lexington to Georgetown, you know that road. That's the road that goes between those two cities. And he also, you know, Georgetown, home to Toyota. Uh, he He worked with Toyota to increase the investment in the Georgetown plant and was there very often whenever they would have press releases announcing new work being done. So that is kind of what he did. Um, with his time as a member of the minority, trying to just do what he can to get in front of people, to get his name out there, that kind of stuff. Coros is also very supportive of Jamie Comer, who was then the agriculture commissioner, and his attempt to legalize hemp. At the time, the issue of hemp fell along very, very different contours. We see all the time, like the Democrats had the Let's Grow bill uh, in both the House and the Senate that wanted to like fully legalize marijuana. Uh, and, and the Republicans did not hear that at all. In fact, they wanted to not go nearly as far. We did not legalize medical marijuana this year. At the time, uh, Republicans were really in favor of legalizing hemp. And Democrats in leadership were wanting to take a much more cautious approach at the behest of law enforcement. They were like, we don't want legalized hemp because the law enforcement thinks this is bad for our enforcement of marijuana laws. Very, very different time for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was like SB 50 at the time. Um, you know, Jamie Comer, Ryan Quarles uh, were really pushing that. Um, there were a lot of people in the agriculture commission or agriculture committee on the house and in the senate you know in the senate it passed very easily it was in the senate was in republican control at the time and and that was the big debate um and, and ryan quarles was kind of front and center in trying to legalize hemp here in kentucky so you know while in the house ryan quarles was thoughtful and engaging he made many friends on both sides of the aisle tons of people gained a lot of respect for ryan quarles who are democrats and republicans the tea party did not like him very much when he originally ran in 2010 they ran a candidate against him saying you know he wasn't the conservative the type of conservative that they wanted in office so whenever you hear people talking about ryan quarles saying like oh this is the ryan quarles i knew that's when he kind of earned that reputation when he had a service in the house and, and he definitely cut a much more moderate path than he has in the past like five years or so. Okay, in 2015, Ryan Quarles decided to run for agriculture commissioner. His main opponent in that race was Richard Heath. Richard Heath is a Western Kentucky member of the House of Representatives. He's there now. He's also a current. He's already announced that he's running for agriculture again on the GOP side in the 2023 race. He has an opponent, Jonathan Shell. So it's almost the same kind of race over again, where you have this like young gun, Jonathan Shell, being you know a former member of of the the House who is unseated, um, but who was Mitch McConnell's uh, campaign manager. So you have this like very politically connected guy running against you know poor Richard Heath, who's like a farmer in Western Kentucky who. You know, may actually be a pretty good agriculture commissioner. Um, despite the polling only showing Ryan Quarles with a big lead back there in 2015, the final tally was 50.4% to 49.6% in the primary. He barely beat out uh, Richard Heath, who won by less than 1,500 votes. As has been the case for a very long time, of course, the Republican, who was Ryan Quarles, walked away in the general with the election to agriculture commissioner. I think 2015, that might have been the only Republican. Uh, race that they won <laughs> again very different time <laughs> so jamie comer who preceded ryan coral in the agriculture commissioner's office he worked really hard to legalize him in kentucky we already mentioned that again sb50 at the time it, it eventually d- did pass in some form or fashion and, and the thing was about kentucky's attempt to legalize hemp when jamie comer was agriculture commissioner was that it preceded the federal government making the crop legal 
Quarles really picked up that work after Jamie Comer left. That was something that he just he just continued on with. In 2014, which was right before uh, you know Quarles was elected, a farm bill passed allowing hemp cultivation on an experimental basis. And Quarles managed that program as it grew from just 33 acres in 2014 to 900 in 2015 to 4,500 acres of hemp in 2016 to 12,800 acres of hemp in the ground in 2017. So when I say like it was on an experimental basis, basically the way that that worked was like if you wanted to grow hemp, you had to get permission from the agriculture commissioner. So, you know, Ryan Corals is out there like, yeah, anybody who wants it, go ahead and get it. And and, and he was kind of criticized about that by some agriculture people saying he was way too liberal, way too, way, gave out way too many permission slips to grow hemp. And, and one of the things that happened is that even after in 2018 when a new farm bill passed that fully legalized hemp at that point in 2018 the amount of hemp in the ground actually went down uh it went down substantially and and that's because there was a big crash in the price um we've talked about this at length you can go back to our interview with jim higdon who is a, a marijuana advocate and the owner of a cbd company who obviously has a lot to do with hemp um and and he will tell you he talks in our interview with him about how that that crop really crashed because the price fell apart and there wasn't as much demand um and, and a lot of people have criticized ryan corals for for not you know seeing that happening uh, and just giving out you know hemp licenses to anybody that wanted to do it and really the crop hasn't fully recovered but it is still the truth that kentucky grows more hemp than almost any other state i think california grows more than us they're a much larger state both in terms of population and in terms of size but kentucky is one of the major hemp if not the largest hemp pr- producer in the country and that is due to the work of jamie comer and ryan quarles uh, and it has to be mentioned along with Mitch McConnell on the federal level who shepherded both of these farm bills through that got hemp approved in 2014 on an experimental basis and fully legalized in 2018. So that's that's an issue, um, you know, you got to you got to kind of credit Mitch McConnell with. Um, all right. Ryan Quarles coasted a reelection in 2019 by a 20 point margin. Oh, gosh. What was the name of the guy he ran against? Jasmine, we talked to him. Robert Conway. I like that guy a lot. He was mm-hmm. the Democratic nominee for for Agriculture Commissioner. I thought he was a really cool guy. Uh, but, you know, not much of an opponent for for Ryan Quarles. I think he won by almost 20 points. And really, he's feuded with Andy Bashir constantly since then. During, you know, Quarles' second term in office and Andy Bashir's first term in office as governor, the Republican supermajority legislature has tried to take away powers from the governor and invest them within the Agriculture Commissioner. That has inevitably led to lawsuits by the governor, most of which he has won so far. Jazz, I think you even talked about this, what, like two or three weeks ago, right? I think so. I did. It's It's been a long, it was a long session. <laughs> yeah, it really was a very long session. So since 2017, you know, Quarles has certainly courted the Trumpier parts of the Republican electorate. He, he was a member of Trump's agricultural advisory t- uh, team when he was the president and even had the chance to, to greet President Trump when he exited Air Force One um, here in Kentucky, I believe. Um, so that is, uh, you know, that does stand in a little bit of contrast to to when he was originally elected to the House, when the Tea Party didn't like him, the really conservative kind of wackier part of the party and the Republican Party didn't like Ryan Quarles then. And he has really courted them. And I think, um, you know, at least President Trump has given him a, some sort of seal of approval since then. 
Now, Ryan Quarles is running for governor. The 2023 election is going to be a lot different than previous years, though. Instead of naming a running mate right away, candidates for governor can wait until after the primary to do so. It's likely to be a pretty crowded uh, primary, and and it's yet to be seen who else is going to run on the GOP side. I think we have like two candidates, but Ryan Quarles, in my opinion, is by far the most serious. So it is possible that even if Ryan Quarles doesn't win the gubernatorial primary, he may end up as the lieutenant governor candidate. Um, so that's that's the next step. He's term limited as the agriculture commissioner, and if he doesn't make it, he you know he's gonna he's not gonna have a job. So he he might be the lieutenant governor candidate or find something else to do. Regardless. Even though Ryan Quarles has been around for a long time, he is pretty young. He came into the public office in 2010 at the age of 27. It's 12 years later. He's in his, you know, I think late 30s, early 40s, something like that. So, you know, he's likely to be around for for much, much longer period of time um, in in Kentucky politics. So so that's, you know, that's Ryan Quarles. Uh, Jasmine, what do you think about Ryan Quarles? Uh, What do you think about his career as it's evolved? And what do you think about his chances both in the Republican primary and in the general election if he is to be the Republican nominee? So I think Ryan Quarles has done a really good job of like managing both wings of the Republican party right now. So like you, you still have some of these more moderate Republicans. A lot of them have drawn challengers in their like legislative races. Um, And then you have the more Trumpy, I guess. That's what I call them. I think people can read between the lines about what we actually think there. Yeah. Yeah. And, And those kind of people are, running for office (laughs) and we have some in the legislature already. Um, But I I think he's done a good job of, of balancing those two parts of the caucus. And he really speaks to some of those like more like tea party type Republicans um, in challenging Bashir's executive orders and, basically challenging Bashir every step of the way on social media. Um, I think he really speaks to them, but people still remember him as being more moderate. He had a really good reputation when he was coming up in the legislature, um, a good reputation amongst Democrats too, I think. And so I think he has a really good chance. I know Kelly Craft is another potential gubernatorial candidate. She'll have a ton of money. Um, so that that's a challenge that he'll have. And then I think the other, if Daniel Cameron decides to run that, that'll be the other competition. And I, I'm not sure who people would choose between Brian Curls and Daniel Cameron. Yeah, I mean that that that's something, uh, and and what Mitch McConnell will do in that moment too, um, whether mm-hmm. he will stick with Daniel Cameron. I, I mean, I know he's been supportive of both of their careers in the past, um, and and, and kind of where the you know where the endorsements will fall if both of them end up running. Daniel Cameron did say this week he was looking at running for governor. But yeah, uh, I mean, there's other people too. The the mayor of Somerset is a, a rumored candidate. He has been working pretty hard to raise his profile. But of course, you know, um, if he runs for governor, that will shoot it up pretty quickly. There, there's all sorts of people. I mean, Savannah Maddox has been courted by that mm-hmm. wing, the, the Trumpier part of the, the yeah. Republican Party. So we may and have somebody like her in, yeah. the, in the primary. Um, Something I think about is what happened with Matt Bevin when you had 
a couple more moderate candidates splitting votes, um, yeah. we ended up with Matt Bevin. So that could happen with Ryan Quarles, Daniel Cameron, Kelly Kraft, some combination of of those mm-hmm. well that that's kind of the primary but jasmine before we move on i did kind of want to think you know if it does end up being ryan corals versus andy Bashir, uh how do you how do you handicap that race at and you know given that it's may 2022 who i i think that's really tough because i think that andy Bashir won because he ran against matt bevan and matt bevan had become really unpopular um even with some people in his own party and I think Ryan Quarles is more likable than Matt Bevin. But Andy Bashir does have a really high approval rating. And so I'm feeling a little bit more positive about Bashir's chances of re-election. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I you know, I, I think there's a lot of like cross party governors by that. I mean like, you know, Massachusetts has a Republican governor. Vermont has a Republican governor. Maryland has a Republican governor. Kansas has a democratic governor. Louisiana has a democratic governor, that kind of thing. Kentucky Mm -hmm. is on that list. And, and the places like that where governors are able to run for reelection, they've been able to be very successful. And and I think that's because whenever you're in that situation, you know, people see the governor um, being a pretty moderate figure. And I think that that's what a lot of the electorate kind of prefers in in the first place um so i I feel pretty good about about andy bashir's chances but i do think ryan corals has some has some characteristics that would make him a really tough opponent for andy bashir he's able i think so too he's able to credibly uh you know kind of uh attack him on a few issues that uh he's much more conservative on credibly um you know because he has been supportive of donald trump in the past um you know ryan quarles has a lot of experience i think that helps him out a lot he's been in government since 2010 so he's he knows kind of how it works that's something he can like uh you know hang his hat on um so yeah that that will be a very interesting race if it happens but like you i am feeling more optimistic about any Bashir's chances as as we kind of move along all right that's plenty about ryan quarles jasmine tell us about down ballot races and electing judges yeah, so this is going to be a long segment, but I do think it's important that people know about these races because even some of my most politically involved friends um, don't really always understand how many district court seats there are. And, oh, I've seen this, pers- this person running. Does that mean they're running against this person I support? And, and so I, I think all of these judge races get a little muddled and confusing for people. Um, So I did want to talk a little bit about judicial races that you're going to see on the back of your ballot. So this is a big year for them because every eight years we end up with an election year where terms are up for district court judges, circuit court judges, court of appeals, and half four of the Supreme court seats. Um, So you're going to see a ton of judicial races. There are primaries in judicial races, but the races are nonpartisan. So there's not a nominee from each party like with any partisan race. Basically, instead, the top two vote getters advance to the general. And if there's only two candidates, that race is no primary. That race will just magically appear in the general election. Yes, you. if there's only two candidates in the race, you won't see it on your primary ballot, but you will see it in November. So the way these races um, are kind of 
divided up. Kentucky's divided into judicial circuits, and then it's also divided into Supreme Court districts. There are seven Supreme Court districts, and there's one justice in each district. The Court of Appeals seats also follow the Supreme Court districts, except there are two Court of Appeals judges per district for a total of 14. So seven Supreme Court seats, 14 Court of Appeals seats. Kentucky is also divided into those judicial circuits. There's 57 circuits, and each circuit is made up of one to four counties. So you don't really have to worry about your circuit number I guess it matters more in circuits that cover more than one county because they may refer to them as the 54th Judicial Circuit instead of Louisville, where it's just Jefferson County is the Judicial Circuit. So we were the 30th, but you never hear anyone really say that. Does that make sense? It, it does, and it gets really confusing. But yes, I think Lexington is also one county. I think I think Bowling Green, there's, there's several that are one county. Yeah, there's... I mean, yeah, because there's there's 57 of them and there's 120 counties. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think Christian County is its own, Hopkins County, but then there are some. There's one in northern Kentucky that's Boone and Gallatin. Um, so it, it's up to four counties in some of the smaller counties. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, like, even though Jefferson and Hopkins, like you mentioned, are just one, the thing is, like, you in the 30th in Louisville, there's, like, a billion district courts or something like that, right? Right. So many circuits only have one circuit court judge and one district court judge, and some have a family court judge. But then these bigger circuits that are one county often have more than one of each. Um Jefferson's obviously the largest county, and we have 17 district court judges, 13 circuit court judges, and 10 family court judges. So I guess like the load is kind of balanced, but Louisville has to just vote for way more judges. Yes, and uh, <laughs> I think that's where a lot of people that I talk to get confused about who's running against who, and reasonably so. Um, but I thought we'd also talk a little bit about what each court does, because People are like, I'm voting for all these judges. What's the difference? The Supreme Court of Kentucky hears appeals in cases involving the death penalty or a, a sentence of 20 years or more. Then other, other cases are heard on a discretionary basis from the Court of Appeals. So they don't have to, they get to decide if they're going to hear a case from the Court of Appeals, but they do have to hear criminal cases criminal appeals of a, with a sentence of 20 years or more or death. The Supreme Court is also responsible for establishing rules of practice and procedures um, for courts. And then that also includes the conduct of judges and attorneys. So disciplinary proceedings for attorneys also heard by the Supreme Court. This, it, this may be a little bit more informal, but like the chief justice often is the person who's like building the budget for the judicial system as a whole. Like John Mitten is often in Frankfurt doing right. That work, so right? that's the the part like establishing the rules of practice and procedures gotcha. for courts. Um, that is part of their role. So four of the seven justices' terms are retiring. The chief justice, Justice Mitten, who you just mentioned, he's from the second Supreme Court district, um, which is Bowling Green and several other counties. So it's Western Kentucky, but not far Western Kentucky. It also includes like Hardin County and, and places like that. The Penny Ryle. Yes. 
Um, Kelly Thompson, who is a current Court of Appeals judge, is running for that seat against Sean Alcott. Alcott was an assistant county attorney before becoming a partner at a private firm focusing on healthcare law, and she was also once a staff attorney at the Court of Appeals. So Kelly Thompson um, is already on the Court of Appeals, so he's he's running for the higher office, and I think he's a really fair Court of Appeals judge. Um, I don't know much about his opponent, but that is who is running for Chief Justice Minton's open seat. Justice Hughes, who is in the 4th Supreme Court District, which is Louisville, she's also retiring. Angela McCormick-Bissig, who is a circuit court judge in Louisville, is running against Jason Bowman for that seat. Um, Bowman has his own family law practice. And this seat, Judge Bissig's been talking about running for this seat for probably as long as I've been an attorney. So um, I think this was her expected move. This is another example of one that won't be on the primary ballot, but will be on the general. Yeah, correct. Um, And then Justice Keller, who is in the 6th District, which includes um, northern Kentucky and and other counties along the river. She drew a challenger in her race. So State Representative Joe Fisher is running against her um, and is running a very partisan race with a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, we've seen that a couple times. We've talked about it before. Um, you know, Whitney Westerfield, who is a legislator, was uh, running for Supreme Court in Western Kentucky and lost. Uh, and, and then um, Chris Harris in Eastern Kentucky was running uh, a former Democratic legislator for Supreme Court, and, and he lost as well. <laughs> so not a good track record of people mm-hmm. making the jump from the legislature to the Supreme Court. It's just another example of someone a a more conservative running for a judicial seat that is identifying as a conservative you know these races are nonpartisan, but I think it's become this new thing of trying to get conservatives into judicial seats Mm -hmm. and they're running on being a constitutional conservative is is the term that I hear a lot yeah and and that's something that's that's following the path of a lot of other states have done this already and wisconsin even mm-hmm. i think actually has the parties nominate candidates for for supreme court which is a little wild yeah and and i i think that's something that republicans would really like to do um at least some of them in the legislature and so hopefully that doesn't happen um j- judges need like to be independent um but so that's the sixth Supreme Court District, and then the other races are all unopposed. So the next court is the Court of Appeals, and they hear appeals from circuit court and then some family court matters like child custody or property disputes, um, and they also hear appeals from the Workers' Compensation Board. So the Court of Appeals um, reviews the decisions of trial courts, but they don't allow parties to relitigate a case And so they can only review the original record from the trial court. So um, the Supreme Court is that way as well with appeals, um, but the the judicial and attorney conduct stuff is a little bit different. But so those are our appellate courts. Both seats in Louisville are open seats as two judges are retiring. So we have two court of appeals races in Louisville. 
Jefferson District Court judge Annette Karam is running for one of them, and she's running against Representative Mackenzie Cantrell and an attorney, Stan Wetzel. And so there is a primary for that seat. Um, judge Karam, I think, is like come under a bit of fire for she's been the chief district court judge in Louisville during the pandemic and um, during this jail crisis where there have been several deaths in the jail. Um, and, and she's definitely been criticized for how she's handled both of those things <laughs> um, and how she's organized the dockets during the pandemic. And, and so I, I think that's why she drew two challengers. And then Mackenzie Cantrell was a, a victim of redistricting. Um, and so she's running for court of appeals. The other race is judge Audra Eckerly and Trisha Lister. Um, they're running for the other court of appeal seat in Louisville. And that's a race where there is no primary because there's only two candidates. Judge Eckerly is a circuit court judge in Louisville. And then Trisha Lister is a longtime appellate attorney. I've seen her name on briefs at the court of appeals quite a bit. So she has a ton of experience. And so that's a race that will be on the ballot in November. There are a couple other court of appeals races um, that are opposed. Jeff Taylor in the second district has an opponent. And then Suzanne Citrullo, who is the newest appointed court of appeals judge, who's now running to keep her seat. She has an opponent as well, but all of the others are unopposed. So they will have a new term at the Court of Appeals. We'll also have one other new Court of Appeals judge. So Judge Kelly Mark Easton, who is a circuit court judge in Hardin County, he's running unopposed for the other open seat in the second district. So those are the only Court of Appeals races um, that we'll be looking at. But it does sound like that there's, I mean, there's 14 seats and it sounds like a lot of these seats are open. So we will be looking at a pretty significantly different Court of Appeals uh, in the next, you know, in the next term, I guess. Well, I think just three are open. Yeah. So, yeah. That that's still. I mean, that's three. That's 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 not yeah. an insignificant amount. Yeah. I think I I'm more surprised that so many of these races go unopposed. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Yeah. So those are the appellate courts in Kentucky. And the next um, is circuit court. So circuit court is a court of general jurisdiction that hears civil matters involving more than $5,000, capital offenses and felonies, um, and then like land dispute title cases and contested probate cases. And so um, circuit courts also have the power to issue injunctions and they hear appeals from district court and administrative agencies. So um, an appeal from like uh, the police merit board that that appeal would be heard by a circuit court. Or if you have a trial on a misdemeanor assault in district court, the circuit court would hear would be the first appellate court in those cases. So I'm not going to be able to remember this. I'll probably refer back to the show or the document, but uh, like circuit courts just slightly above district court. That's like the way that it's layered. It's like Supreme court's at the top, then court of appeals and then circuit court is like the next one. Yeah. Circuit court is, the trial court level, um, gotcha. but a higher trial court level than district court. They, they just hear different types of cases. So um, any kind of dispute over money with more than $5,000. So um, 
if a credit card company suing someone for a $20,000 debt, that, that lawsuit's going to be filed in circuit court and then felonies. So if someone's charged with a felony offense um, and the district court finds probable cause, that case gets indicted in circuit court. And that's who, where you would have a, a trial for a felony. Um, so that is what circuit court judges do. Those terms are every eight years. And so their terms are up this year. And then family courts are also a division of circuit court. The biggest circuit court race this year, um, I would say, is definitely in Franklin County. We've talked about this race a little bit before. Judge Philip Shepard is running for re-election and is opposed for the first time in 16 years when he first ran for the seat. So that was two terms ago for him. Joe Bilby is challenging Judge Shepard. He's the general counsel for the Kentucky Department of Agriculture, and he is another candidate who describes himself as a constitutional conservative, and he was once an aide to Mitch McConnell, and he has received um, some McConnell PAC money in that race. We should probably say that Franklin Circuit Court is like kind of special. Because yes. it is it is where Frankfurt is, and all of basically all challenges to state law after they're made are in Franklin Circuit Court originally. So he hears a ton of those kind of uh, rulings, or he he hears a ton of those kind of cases. And Republicans have not been pleased with him, um, even though you know he's very fair, um, and and that's why they're targeting him like this. Yes, definitely. Um, and then in Fayette County which has six circuit court judges, only one judge is opposed. So Judge Jeffrey Taylor has drawn four primary challengers, including Catherine Webster, Diane Minifield, who are, they're both longtime prosecutors, Kim Green, who's a career public defender, and then Michael Davis, who um, he's had a lot, a long career in state government. So he's worked for a lot of government agencies and, Judge Taylor um, was a recent Bashir appointee. So he just he was just appointed to the seat. And some of these candidates had already filed to run for the seat before he was appointed. And so that's why you have a very crowded primary um, in Fayette Circuit Court. Gotcha. One thing that I learned not uh, that long ago was you will sometimes see signs that will be like reelect this judge. And sometimes you will see signs that say keep this judge because mm -hmm. the governor can appoint pretty much just directly appoint these judges at this level. And uh, sometimes they aren't reelected because they were never elected in the first place. So that's when they say keep. Yeah. Right. So when you say the governor can directly appoint, um, the situation where that happens is when a judge doesn't finish their term. So um, if they got appointed to uh, a higher judgeship or they retired before the end of their term, those are situations where the governor would appoint someone to the seat and then they would finish out that term and then would have to run for the seat. So judge Jeffrey Taylor is running to keep his seat. <laughs> Um, he's raised the most money in the race. He's raised $150,000, which is, 
Michael Davis has raised 55000 and both Kim Green and Catherine Webster both have over $10,000 in that race. We, we are getting close. Uh, we, we just had the, I think, the 30-day prior. No, we, we have like the 10-day prior KREF reports that have come out, so I have not yet looked at those. But yeah, Jeff Taylor had raised one of the most, the highest amount of money of any candidate mm-hmm. in, in all of Kentucky. So that was that's a lot of money. There are also a few high-dollar races in northern Kentucky and Bowling Green. Kendra McArdle, who's running for family court in Boone and Gallatin counties, she's raised $94,000, though a pretty substantial amount of that is self-funded. Her opponents raised about $13,000. And then in Kenton County, Jason Hilt has raised $54,000 for an open circuit court seat. And he faces two opponents, so there's a primary in that race, but he's substantially outraised both louisville also has a couple interesting primaries um of course those are the ones that i know the most about because i live here but i do think they're worth talking about because we have a lot of local listeners as well so one incumbent mary shaw has drawn two challengers shaw's known for signing the brianna taylor warrant um and so it's not surprising that she drew a challenge she faces tracy davis who is an attorney in private practice who represented protesters in the wake of Breonna Taylor's death. Um, She's also ran for district court in a really tight race. And then Christine Miller, who is a former public defender who's now in private practice, she's running against Mary Shaw as well. Ted Schaus, who serves as the attorney for the Bail Project and also organized free representation for protesters in 2020, he came on our show. Um, He's also running for Circuit Court Division 7 against Crit Cunningham, who is a career prosecutor who has all the law enforcement endorsements. So I think that's a race where you have um, two kind of candidates that have contrasting experience yeah absolutely yeah um melissa logan bellows is also in that race she's a creditor's attorney um but she's been outraised pretty substantially by ted shouse and crick cunningham but that is a race that has a primary circuit court division nine is the most crowded race with six candidates um so this race is kind of similar to the race in in fayette county where a lot of people had some people had already filed to run for the seat and then someone retired and Bashir made an appointment. Um, Jessica green was appointed to the seat, but she had actually already filed in another division and is unopposed. So basically she'll move over to division six after this race. Um, and then division nine will become an open seat. So Sarah Clay, who is a former public defender with her own private practice, she's raised the most money in that race with $84,000. Tim Buckley is in second place with $36,000. And Todd Lewis, um, who is a private criminal defense attorney, he's raised about $30,000. Todd Lewis was one of the attorneys nominated to fill the vacant seat in Division 9, but Jessica Green was appointed over him. And then the third nominee, Blaine Grant, who is also running for the seat, um, was the he was the third nominee for that appointment, but neither of them um, were selected by the governor, so they're both running for it. So that's a very crowded primary with a lot of money going around. Yes, I've I've seen I've seen signs for all of these people. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that that covers a, f- a few of the big races in circuit court. 
Um, and then the lowest court, like the entry level of the justice system is district court. So district court is a court of limited jurisdiction. Um, so that means they, they can't just handle anything. They handle juvenile court matters, city and county ordinances, misdemeanors, violations, and traffic offenses. Um, those are like the criminal offenses that they handle. Probate of wills, arraignments, felony probable cause hearings, small claims involving $2,500 or less, um, civil cases involving $5,000 or less, and then they also handle um, voluntary and involuntary mental health commitments in cases relating to domestic violence and abuse. Yeah, and even you so even though you say it's limited jurisdiction, like th those are pretty weighty matters. Like juvenile justice is a huge, huge, huge issue, and like so dealing with that level of justice is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and felony, most felony cases, even though they will eventually be heard by a circuit court judge, they do start in district court. So um, district court judges are the ones who do the arraignment. So they they set bond in most cases. Um, they also hear the preliminary hearings, a probable cause hearing to decide if, if the case is going to go to circuit court. Um, and then they hear all misdemeanors and traffic offenses. And so, yeah, they hear, they hear a lot of cases and um, they're pretty heavy dockets yeah as well yeah all the traffic offenses that's going to be a pretty hefty docket just on its own yeah so louisville has a lot of really interesting district court races this year as well um and i, I mentioned this one there's no primary in this race but it, for division one one candidate emily corfidge monarch has raised over a hundred thousand dollars um but a hundred thousand of it is self-funded and so she has the most money in the district court races and she faces Anthony Jones, who is an assistant county attorney. So she faces a prosecutor. Um, I don't know if Emily Monarch has the name recognition that some other candidates running have because she she left the workforce for um, a period of time to be a stay at home mom and raise her children and then return to practicing law. And so. I don't know if she's like been around the courthouse um, as long as some of the other candidates running, but she does have a lot of money to work with. She is building that name recognition by putting monarch butterflies on her signs. Right. And, and she had and her maiden name Corfidge, I think, is, is a well-known last Absolutely. name. Yeah, it definitely in Louisville. So so she definitely has some name recognition there. Um, so that's District Court Division one district. The, some of these other races, I think, are interesting because they are public defender versus prosecutor face-offs. Um, you know, we have a lot of prosecutors who run for judge, and in Louisville, at least, um, I think the county attorney kind of encourages that. He allows people in his office to run while working as county attorneys, and, and that's something that the public defender's office doesn't do. And so... Um, that's kind of resulted in a lot of prosecutors becoming judges, but not as many public defenders or criminal defense attorneys on the bench. But we do have um, some public defender prosecutor face-offs this year. So in Division 4, Yvette De La Guardia is a former public defender who's running against a current prosecutor, Jennifer Merzen-Yancey, and a former assistant county attorney, Laura Chisholm-Holman. 
De La Guardia would also be the first elected Latina judge in Louisville. So a few years ago, um, Danny Alvarez was running for district court to become the first Latino judge in Louisville, but he tragically died the day after winning his primary by a really big margin. Um, and so it, it seemed like he was on his way to making history. Um, and then his life was tragically cut short. Um, later, Bashir appointed Ellie Kerstetter, who became the first Latina judge to family court, but she only held the seat for a year because she lost her election. So we've never elected um, a Latino judge in Louisville. We should also probably be clear. We're not really neutral in the district for race. Uh, Yvette's been on the show a couple times. Yes, She's she has. Our friends were, were helping with the campaign. So uh, take, take, just know that, just know that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, in these races, I definitely have the candidates that I'm supporting. Um, and so, I mean, that's something I want to share, too, is that, like, if you're if you don't know these candidates or don't know who to vote for in these judicial races, asking attorneys who, you know, and trust, um, that's that's a really good idea. Um, so that's the Division four race. But there are some other races that are, are kind of similar with defense attorneys running against prosecutors. So. Division six, the incumbent Lisa Langford has a challenger. Lisa Langford is just finishing her first term after actually beating a longtime incumbent, Sean Delahanty, in 2018. Um, Delahanty kind of became known in the media for allowing a couple people with fairly serious charges to be released on home incarceration. Um, one of those cases that that really people made a big deal about the charges were actually dismissed. Um, but it, it cost him his job. Um, Lisa Langford was a prosecutor who ran against him for the seat and won. And so she's finishing her first term, but now she has a challenger, Justin Brown. He's a private criminal defense attorney and also a former public defender who's filed to run against her. Um, and so this is a race that doesn't have a primary, but I think it's, it's an interesting challenged race to watch I, i'm surprised by that justin brown already has signs this is how i interact with these races i see who has signs <laughs> yeah he, he does have signs up there um yellow and brown kind of like the ups, UPS. logo and i think and he even says like see what brown can do for what, Lou. what can brown do for lou yeah so another race um where we have a former public defender versus two prosecutors that's in Division 8, and that's Karen Faulkner running against Jessica Stone and Lindsey Volk Beats. And so this race is an open seat. Um, Karen Faulkner is a former public defender who now has her own practice. And then Lindsey Beats and Jessica Stone are both current prosecutors. Karen Faulkner, um, she has run for judge previously. She was in that primary with Danny Alvarez and Tanisha Hickerson. And she came in third place by 17 votes. Um, but because she didn't succeed in the primary, she was not on the ballot for the general election. Yeah. She, we, we she, talked about that when it happened. Um, mm -hmm. Karen, and she actually, she actually filed a lawsuit to get on the ballot and, and was not successful. Right. Yeah, we talked about that too. Um, Karen Faulkner, also a former candidate for county attorney. Um, back yes. in like 2010 she ran or something. in 2014, yeah, 2014 she ran for county attorney yeah 
Um, so I think this is her third run for office. Switching it up, going with purple signs, not the mm-hmm. not the traditional navy yeah, that I think she had she, the last two she times. She has she's got a new logo, <laughs> new website. Um, she I think that's and that's a seat where all three candidates have raised similar amounts. I think when I last looked at the reports, I haven't looked at the new ones that have been that are due this week, but they all ranged from raising about 14,000 to 20,000. So they're all very competitive and money raised as well. And then one non-Louisville district court race that we wanted to note, um, Bowling Green also has a high dollar district court race. Kimberly Geogagan. I'm not sure if I'm saying her wow. name correctly. That was not what I thought it was going to say. But yeah, uh, if you're in, if you're in Bowling Green, it. any of our Bowling Green listeners, feel free to correct us. If you are Kimberly Gorgon, uh, feel free to just let us know how to pronounce your name. We'll be happy to correct it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'm really off. I don't know. Um, but she's a Bashir appointee in Bowling Green who is now running to keep her seat. And she's also raised nearly $80,000 to her opponent's 1800 So $80,000 is, is a lot of money for a district court race. That's kind of the landscape of judicial races. So you have um, district court at the lowest level, and then circuit court is the higher trial level, and then you have the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. And there will be a lot of races on the ballot, Um, more or less depending on where you live. If you live in Louisville, you will see a lot of them, and a lot of them have primaries too. And so I I think the last thing I wanted to talk about is like how do you know who to vote for because judges can't really run on an issues platform because candidates are subject to judicial ethics rules. Um, Even though they're not judges yet, the code says that candidates... um, it also covers candidates. And so they can't discuss cases that they might rule on or how they might rule on an issue. And so I think that makes these races kind of tough to know what's going on. Judges also are supposed to be independent and have a duty to apply the law as it's written. And if, if they are truly nonpartisan, which we know is not always the case, there shouldn't be like a ton of variance. Um, but we know that the, that not all judges do that, and so there is. Um, but there are situations where judges have discretion, and how they would use that discretion, I think, is what really matters. Even though they have to apply the law, um, there are often times where they have discretion in setting bond, um, whether they're going to place someone on probation and things like that. And so... Um, I think you have to look at candidates' backgrounds and their experience and how they view the world um, to kind of glean how they might use that discretion. I think you can also tell a lot about judicial candidates' perspectives from um, like the stump speeches they give. A big part of these judicial races, because they're countywide and you can't run on an issue, um, is just getting your name out there and being in as many places as possible. Um, so if you go to any big events in Louisville, especially like political events, democratic clubs, 
even Republican events, um, you're probably going to hear some of these candidate stump speeches. And so I think those give you a little bit of an indication. And then also their answers in some of these like judicial candidate surveys. So I know WFPL does these for each candidate. Yeah, to, for me, Jasmine, the most important thing is what my lawyer friends are thinking. I mean, I know that you you have a list every time yeah. uh, that I depend on heavily. Um, you know, I have a lot of other courtroom friends. Uh, you know, if, if you know somebody who works at the courthouse, I really suggest talking to them. And my experience has been courtroom lawyers do not mind at all talking about this kind of thing uh they they do like to talk about the judicial races they are at a lot of these events uh, and are mm-hmm. willing to talk to their friends about it i mean these are the people they're practicing in front of so it matters to them quite a bit so i would definitely talk to them if you don't know anybody in the courthouse um you know you, you can email jasmine <laughs> <laughs> yeah dm me on twitter yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that that to me, uh, or just people who are in and around, um, it, not just lawyers, but just people who are in and around the courthouse on, on some form or fashion. Th- those are the people who, who usually know what's up here. Yeah, and then I think the other thing is looking at endorsements too. So a, lo- a lot of groups do endorse in judicial races. So, you know, look at who who are the labor unions endorsing if you care about labor, um, who is CFAIR, which is the Pact for Fairness? Who are they endorsing? And then in Louisville, you can also look to Citizens for Better Judges. Um, that's a group of 30 people with, with varying types of legal experience that have a pretty rigorous like application process to get their endorsement and you have to go through an interview process. And so those are also some places you can look to see, you know, people who represent your interests, who are they endorsing? The teachers union as well. Uh, Better schools, Mm -hmm. Kentucky, which is Kentucky also endorses in some judicial races too. So, and then, you know, my last thing, Robert already covered it is, is ask, ask the lawyers that, you know, (laughs) and so I'm always happy to talk about some of these races. Um, The ones in Louisville, we have, we, we have, yeah, we have one of, at least one of each. We have district court, circuit court, two court of appeals races and a Supreme court race to think about. And so um, you can always reach out to me if you're here. Um, Sometimes I have opinions on races outside of Louisville, like Supreme court races and court of appeals races. But um, yeah, so that's, that's just like a, a big picture of, of the judicial races Oof. that you're going to see on your ballot. Yeah, that was a substantial piece of information, Jasmine. I mean, this is something I think people can refer back to in the future also because it is just important information to have. So thank you so much for putting it all together for us. Yeah, I think like we, we've we talked a little bit about the, the types of courts, but it's it's been probably since the first year that we've done this. And I've just really realized this year, especially working with, a friend, you know, a friend who's running, um, how many people don't know who, who and when they can vote for judges. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I thought it was kind of important. Yeah. All right. Well, that was very substantial, Jasmine, like I already mentioned. Um, yeah. And, and so thank you so much. And I think you're telling me that I talked for too long. No, you no. You saying it was very substantial. It was. It was just it was good information. <laughs> Let's get to our interview with Jonathan Lowe. 
Jonathan Lowe is a Democratic candidate for the Kentucky House of Representatives in District 34. This is a new district that is in East Central Louisville, so north of Taylorsville and Bardstown Roads, east of Cherokee Parkway, and then all areas south of Brownsboro Road, and then some neighborhoods north of there. He has worked for JCPS in many policy roles, including a stint as the Director of Student Assignment. He is currently the Executive Administrator of Policy and Systems. Mr. Lowe also served on the boards of several organizations locally, including the Coalition for the Homeless, the ACLU, the Family Scholar House, Actors Theater, and many others. So, Jonathan Lowe, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you, and we're excited to talk to you about your race. Um, yeah, you know, with all these new candidates that are running for the Kentucky House this year as Democrats, I always got to ask, like, what, why? Why do you want to do this? Because you're joining, uh, you know, a caucus that currently has 25 members, and, and if you win, it, it, it's going to be really hard to advance any legislation, and your abilities to really block bad legislation will also be really limited. So, you know, wh- why do you want to do this? Why do you want to be in the Kentucky House? Well, so there, there are a couple of reasons. Um, first, uh, before I worked for JCPS, I worked for 12 years for the Kentucky General Assembly as a nonpartisan staffer. So I wrote, drafted legislation on the Education Committee for about eight years, and I was a, poly, uh, a budget analyst on the, uh, on, focused on post-secondary education for three. And so I understand the process, and, and honestly, I love it. It's, it's like an amazing, beautiful thing. It, <laughs> it makes me believe in, you know, representative democracy, all of the things that you think about, like it's, it's when it's done well and you have good leadership, it really, it really um, holds up to the promise of democracy. So it's just like in my heart, it's something I believe in. Um, the second thing is uh, I think even in the, it, it, as a part of a minority party, there's good work to be done and that you can succeed in making life better for Kentuckians working across the aisle, working behind the scenes, having good conversations with people with whom you disagree about many things, but you may agree on some things. And then the third thing is about building power for the future, right? So uh, if, if we always just say, oh, we can't do anything, we only have 25 seats, we'll always only have 25 seats. And so we need to like strengthen the Democratic Party in ways where we can, I want to set the stage so that 15 years from now, there's a Democratic Speaker of the House. Um, it's going to take 50, uh, maybe it's 20, or, but it's going to be a long time. And I don't, I don't expect to be serving at that point, but I want to be able to lay the groundwork. And also, like, um, it's another way to serve. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of uh, service in many areas, and this is another way where I think I can bring my skill set to the work. I think your positive outlook on state government is very refreshing. Let's talk about your district a little bit. So the 34th is a new district, meaning that none of the incumbent House members live there. It's a combination of the Highlands, St. Matthews, and Crescent Hill. And while those areas of town are similar in a lot of ways, they definitely have their each own strong sense of identity. So how do you see your role in organizing this new district and bringing the concerns of it to Frankfurt? Well, first, I, I, it's interesting. I'm, I'm familiar with, um, you know, when I arrived in Kentucky 25 years ago, I lived on Spring Drive, which is in the Highlands um, and right in the district. And then I lived D- Douglas Boulevard area. And now I live in Crescent Hill. 
Um, so there are parts of this, the, the area that I know very, very well. And then there are other parts that are relatively new to me. Like I, I know they where they are, uh, but, you know, I'm learning there. What I do love is like in each part of town, there are lots of really active folks who are working hard on their neighborhoods and on um, their community at large. They're really engaged. And, um, and some of them are starting to sort of come together as coalitions of neighborhood associations or groups that are working together. So that's really exciting. Um, a lot of what I'm going to do early on is listen and hear what people are thinking about and caring about. So like one of the things that I know is on the minds of a number of people related to state government is um, kind of like major thoroughfares, uh, some of which are state roads and some of which need attention and a legislator can help with that. And then the other thing is like, there are things that are statewide issues that matter in every part of Kentucky and that we need to make, you know, public education, access to healthcare, good jobs with a living wage, like all of those things, you know, equal rights for all, racial justice, those things matter everywhere. And so they matter in the 34th district as well as in other places. Those, those common things are actually the place where you can build across difference because uh, we have issues in our district that are the same as Paducah or Pikeville or Wolf County or wherever. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true. And that, that's one of the things about a, a district like, like the, you know, like the 34th is that, um, those, the areas there actually really care about the rest of the state. Not mm-hmm. that every other district doesn't care about every other district, but, but that's a, that's top of mind for a lot of people in the 34th and being able to take that to, to Frankfurt is something that I think a lot of the people there really do care about. But, you know, you mentioned already, uh, acts of service being really important to you and your service and boards and various other things being, being acts of service and how that's important to your identity. And re- in reading your biography, you really emphasize that. You talk about how, you know, your parents created this ethic of service within you and you've tried to carry that forward. Um, and, and yeah, I, I'm really interested uh, in hearing you talk a little bit about that and, and how that ethic and how, you know, acts of service are, are something that, that will form and, and inform your service if you make it to Frankfurt. Sure. So as I said, I came to Kentucky about 25 years ago. Um, uh, my, my wife at the time grew up in Louisville. And so we were coming home close to family for her. Um, and I was, you know, I had been working in New York City doing kind of like sales and marketing in Midtown uh, is very, you know, high pressure, very intense. And like, I sort of loved it. And at the same time, I very, I felt very disconnected to where I was living. So living in New Jersey, working in Manhattan, 70 hour weeks, didn't feel connected to community. And so very intentionally, when I came here, I said, I'm going to figure out how to do things that connect me to my community. The first one was with working on, um, you know, the statewide fairness work. And that connected in me with um, racial justice circles because fairness does intersectional, you know, fighting oppression across a set of issues and not just that. And then reproductive freedom, affordable housing, um, support for labor through jobs with justice. I believe in showing up. Um, It's one thing to have like a policy position, but in order for change to happen, people have to roll up their sleeves and do the work. And sometimes that's like, you know, showing up at a protest. Sometimes that's licking envelopes. Sometimes that's, you know, I tried to bring my policy experience into areas where, where I could do that. So I've drafted uh, legislation in areas that I don't really know much about, like, um, 
the issue of selling liens on housing, which is an affordable housing issue, um, and they can abandon properties. I helped draft the very first version of like getting licensure for uh, nurse midwives. Um, I helped draft um, improved legislation for statewide fairness. So like I have a, I have a skill set that I try and bring when I can, and then also like. I, I go to the St. John Center for Homeless Men and I sort socks. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the guy who takes what people to donate and put them in the right bins and make sure that it's organized and orderly. So showing up really matters. Um, and, you know, it does go back to my, my parents in, in different ways. My father was, you know, they were civil rights as, activists in the 60s um, and, you know, never left that. And my mother figured out ways to do service in weird ways that, you know, it kind of resonated with me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, like the other thing is like, it connects you to community. You, you make friends, you have uh, relationships with people. And at the end of the day, you're also helping um, make our community a better place. So it's, it's amazing. Sometimes I overdo it. Right. So I, I actually, <laughs> yeah, you're involved in a lot. <laughs> I, I, well, you know, like, like I'm not on the coalition for the homeless board. I was going to be. And then I was like, no, I got, I'm already doing too much. So I'm going to not do that. And then I'm, you know, trying to pare that down a little bit so I can do other things, but. Yeah. You definitely have to find a balance of those things so that you can like adequately help instead of stretching yourself too thin. Um, so I definitely understand that. Yeah. So, and, you know, well, my, my job at JCPS is, you know, um, consequential as well. So, yeah. you know, like that's, that's a little bit more than a full-time job too. Um, so, you know, if, if I were to, uh, if I were to prevail and become the leg legislator for the 31st district, um, I would focus a lot of my, you know, free time on that and, reduce some other things I'm doing. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about the legislative session a little bit. So this past legislative session, we had a lot of bad stuff that passed, including cuts to social services, attacks on abortion rights, some meddling with teachers in the classroom and a tax cut that will hurt us in the future. So, you know, from that list or just from your own experience following the legislature what are some of the bills that you um, wish you'd have a chance to speak out against as a member of the House? Yeah, so um, the, the list is really, really long. This was the worst <laughs> legislative session I've ever seen. And I've seen, you know, I've, I've, I've lived through dozens of them. Um, one of my earlier jobs with JCPS was as their legislative liaison. So even when I wasn't in Frankfurt, I was, you know, lobbying um, up there. Uh, so, like, as I said, the list is really, really long. Uh, I will say, you know, the, 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 the tax cut is really going to be detrimental for the long term because they're cutting revenue and they're not putting it back. So, like, there's going to be a huge deficit that they're creating and there's, they don't have any plan to, to deal with that. And so that's going to mean additional cuts to needed services for people who are in need. And then, uh, you know, to... Um, require people who are looking for, you know, SNAP or other benefits to go through these myriad hoops is going to like cost a lot of money for the state. And I really like things that work and are cost efficient and it's going to just knock people off. And so you're creating poverty, you're putting kids back into poverty and it's unconscionable. And then what they did with workers' compensation is another place where, you know, you have people who are just 
at their wits end and can't don't have money for rent or food and you're going to cut them off. The list is long. The abortion um, thing is, you know, is an incredibly scary um, and terrible thing. Uh, so, you know, I am a, a strong advocate for abortion access and, um, you know, we're, we're going to have to figure out what the, what the new future holds. Um, so I would definitely have spoken about that. I had trans thing. I, I wrote a, an op-ed for the Courier Journal. Both of my children are transgender. Um, I have a 16 year old and a 21 year old. And so like this direct, these, these attacks on children directly impacts my family. Um, you know, I would be fighting against it anyway, but it feels much closer to home and much more dangerous. Um, you know, I, th I think it's sort of like how other oppressed peoples um, live with this all the time. You know, if you're, if, <laughs> if you're living in, in, in America right now and you're black, um, policing is an issue in a way that it's never going to be an issue for me. And, you know, in this way, my trans kids have an issue that's life or death that other people don't have. And so like, that's, that's an, and I actually did go and testify against the, the, the uh, anti-transgender sports bill. Um, you know, so I do, do my work showing up, but uh, you know, and this is, this is part of this is like the, the long game. So like, I know there are going to be big losses that are going to continue over the next five or six years, but I want to be at the, at the, see the other end 15 or 20 years from now when, you know, those rights are, codified and protected and where people who are without housing get it and people who need health care can afford it and um, people who want a job at a living wage can find it and keep it. I have a whole bunch of other problems are going to go away. So, you know, I think issues around violence and drug addiction and a crime um, are very connected to economic issues and, and, you know, access to education. And if we take care of like everybody get, being able to get a, a job and if they get what they need, that they're, they're supported, a lot of the other sort of social issues are going to go away. So Democrats have honed in on medical marijuana, sports gambling, and expansion of civil rights and criminal justice reform as major elements of their agenda. Um, and, and some of that you kind of mentioned in your answer to the last question. So do you think that these are the right issues to focus on? Well, I'm supportive of, of um, you know, addressing all of these. Um, you know, I, I think that there are other, other um, policy issues that have a greater likelihood of finding common ground. And so I, I really think the bread and butter issues around education, jobs, and housing, you know, I'd love to have a conversation about universal pre-K and how you get mm -hmm. from that great idea to actually making it a reality. Oh, and it would have to be a phased thing because, like, we don't have capacity, we don't have the teachers, we don't have the buildings. Yeah. But, like, why don't you do that? And so I would think about, like, okay, where, where are the places where the issues that are confronting Louisville families are, are similar or there's common ground with the issues that are confronting, you know, families in rural Kentucky. And, um, you know, that's where I would look for opportunities. Um, we have to build back, you know, democratic power in non-urban areas if we ever want to have a majority again. And I think doing that is like strong policies around things that matter to them as well. The other, well, just connected to that is, I'm going to stand up for my principles and my beliefs. And I also want to listen. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a me coming from Boston and New York city and Chicago or the places I lived. There's a, an arrogance about some city folks that I think is off putting for 
um, <laughs> people who don't live in those areas. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I try to d- dial that back a bit and, and kind of listen and pay attention to people and what they're saying and where they're coming from. And I may not agree or, at all, but at least have giving that respect. You got to build that trust before people are ever going to like find a partnership with you. Yeah, definitely. So I, I noticed one of the things you mentioned is universal pre-K. Um, other than that, are there any issues that you see yourself personally champion, championing in Frankfurt? Any other um, education issues or things like that you may have worked on when you were drafting legislation? Um, are there any issues like that? Yeah, I mean, so for me, you know, public education is a critical matter. You know, we didn't talk about it, but, you know, this was the most con- consequentially bad a legislative session for public education ever between um, the passage of the charter schools bill mm-hmm. and um, um, you know, no pay increase for teachers and, and not enough money to fund them despite what they said, as well as Senate bill one, which um, you know, really dismantles uh, <laughs> a lot of local input on what's going on and, and really targets JCPS uh, and public education in Louisville. And so public education is going to be a, you know, a centerpiece of what I do. And there are two things really that I think would be great opportunities uh, because they, they, they matter all across Kentucky. One of them is that universal pre-K and how you build that out in a way that's, uh, you know, kind of using the infrastructure that's already there and expanding it. And then the second one is addressing the, the current and growing crisis in, of, of uh, teacher shortages. And that's a complicated problem that's, you know, we have for a number of complicated reasons. And so our, our response has to be multifaceted. You know, there was one good piece of legislation that passed to support teacher residencies. It's a great program. They didn't fund it. So they created a structure, but no funding. Uh, I'd love to expand on that and then figure out what are the other strategies. Um, I was endorsed by the JCTA uh, PAC. And I think the reason why is because as a education policy person who's never been a teacher, my, my like first thing idea is talk to the practitioners, talk to the teachers, talk to the principals. What does it mean? What, I don't want to build a policy that's going to make life harder for a teacher. I want to do something that supports them in their amazing work. And then on, there are, are the couple of other things that have really been in my mind recently that I, that I think I'm going to, um, take on as like something I want to work with. One is um, um, the state and local response to violence against women. Uh, And then the second one is about uh, child abuse and neglect and the way that we support families um, to reduce that and also to make sure that kids who um, are taken and are in foster care or in um, state agency settings, you know, have the supports they need. I think both of those are places where like, there's a systems problem. It's, you know, we, we don't do it well. And one of my strengths is to look at issues and problems and figure out like, how can you actually solve that? And, you know, doing research, studying what what other states are doing, um, figuring out what works, what, what we can afford and, you know, find those, those places for investment. I I hate spending money for things that don't work. It pisses me off. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) I would, if, if, you know, you can have a, a, an act relating to, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And if it gives you, you know, lizards and cats, it's, 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 it's not doing what it says it was going to do. I want a, a bill that has like guts, that has real policy power 
and that we know if we implement it correctly is going to get us what we're looking for. Let's. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Uh, and, and I mean, that's, that's kind of what, that's kind of what you can hope for. That's, that's what you want out of, out of legislation. Um, and, and speaking of, <clears throat> you know, the process, you've talked a lot about listening. You've talked about building, you know, bills that have guts and, and making sure that, that, uh, you know, you work, um, on places where there's there's agreement on on both sides of the aisle, but but tell us a little bit more about your approach to legislating. You know, you, you know, at some point, uh, it kind of comes down to the fact that like ideologies are different, and and there's sure. only so, so much listening that you can do when somebody says like, I don't think uh, queer people should have rights, or I, I don't yeah. think women should be able to have abortions. Uh, and, and when you have a situation like that, or or just working on any issues, like what what's your approach to that, and how would you how would you plan to be a part of the legislature as a part of a super minority? Well, so it, it's, it's multifaceted. I think you can do both. I mean, like I, I, I'm, I plan to have legislation that, that, you know, rolls back all of the terrible things that they did on, on abortion access. Um, and that bill will go to absolutely nowhere, but we have to know what our, what our goal is in order to fight for it. Um, so, and, and you want to do that from an affirmative stance as opposed to just a negative stance, like, no, no, no. It's like, here's the op- opportunity, here's the option. And that that's also like what people can build around. So you can build coalitions of people, not political people, just people around a particular issue, but also like a particular goal on that issue. And, I, you know, I just think the Republicans have been better at that over the last 25 years than, than the Democrats have. Um, the other thing that I know about the General Assembly is there are 138 legislators. And in my experience, when I worked there, maybe about 25 or 30 are the ones that make it run. They are the policy leaders. They know the issues of their particular area inside and out. They're the ones that are you know, working with leadership to drive legislation. Some of these folks are in leadership, but some of them are you know, a vice chair of a committee. You know, I, I remember Mary Lou Marzian was actually like really influential as as vice chair of the education committee on a whole number of issues. And she knew all that stuff cold. She knew it backwards and forwards. And so I want to be one of those, you know, more influential people who can kind of help guide what legislation looks like. And then I, di- I still believe that le- that um, the legislative process works if you can work to reduce the amount of antagonism and confrontation on ideology. I think that happens intentionally that, you know, people bring issues that get, you know, the headlines and the anger and the motivation for, for, you know, votes. And yes, you have to live with that and you have to respond to that and you have to like stand up to it. And you have to figure out a way to be able to have conversation about other things and it's hard and it's tiring. It's exhausting. Um, yeah, I talked to legislators coming out of this session and they're just like, that was so hard. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, yeah. I'm ready for it. I, I'm going in eyes wide open, but, um, you know, so yes. The, and the other thing is I'm playing the long game, right? I, I, I am setting the stage for, you know, a more progressive Kentucky that's 20 or 25 years down the road. And I know that that can happen because I've seen it, right? So like, and it's gone in both directions, right? So when I when I worked for the General Assembly, and the Democrats had control of the House, the Senate, and the governorship, and there no one ever thought that that would change. 
and look 20 years later, and it, it certainly has changed. That tells me it doesn't have to be this way, right? You know, when I was a kid, I was a member of the NRA because when I was a Boy Scout, I, I took rifle shooting lessons and, you know, it was all about gun safety. Well, now the NRA is an entirely different thing. I don't think that it's impossible that we can go back in, into a more positive place where, you know, common sense gun laws that save people's lives and allow, you know, people to have their second amendment's rights protected. Like there's a middle ground there and I don't see why we can't get there. I, I don't pretend it'll happen, you know, even, even in the next 10 years, but you got to get the work done. You got to lay the groundwork and show up every day to like make it, make those things happen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what I've learned in talking to you is that you, you already have a really good sense of how the legislature works and, and how things happen in the general assembly. Um, so you, you have a, re a really realistic, but also positive outlook for the future. So I really appreciate that. But before we let you go. Well, um, I, I, I do want to just say yeah. in relation to that is I, you know, I think that that combination of like showing up and understanding how the process works and the policy stuff is the reason why I have the endorsement of the teachers union of the fairness campaign of, you know, ver most all of the labor organizations, um, you know, they know that when I go there, I'm going to be able to hit the ground running and work on the, the, you know, the issues that matter to Kentucky families um, without that steep learning curve. Yeah. You know, it is, let's see, we're just a couple weeks out at this point. It's kind of crunch time. The primary is on May 17th. So before we let you go, um, tell us how people can get involved in your campaign. So um, the, the, probably the quickest way is to go to my website, which is uh, jonathanlowky.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-L-O-W-E-K-Y.com. I also have, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook where there's, there's access there. But, you know, we are actively looking for volunteers to do phone banking and canvassing. You know, we're out multiple nights a week. Um, uh, we're looking for people who still want yard signs. Um, so there's lots to do and uh, everybody's welcome. Uh, and thanks. Thanks for that. All right, Jonathan Lowe, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.